Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hi, welcome to Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Today, we are going to be talking about an article from Dr. Bruce Perry. The title of the article is Memories of Fear, How the Brain Stores and Retrieves Physiologic States, Feelings, Behaviors, and Thoughts from Traumatic Events. It's quite a title. It is. I'm very excited. It's a beautiful title. I'm very excited for this episode. Mm -hmm. By uh, just a little bit by way of introduction, um, one of the things I was thinking uh, in the car on the way here, which is where I do a lot of my best thoughts. Um, Majority of my thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. was just wanting to frame this article mm. um, because it is from um, 1999. So it's mm. pretty early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's definitely some like developments that need to be done. But in choosing this, one of the reasons why I suggested it was it's a great primer for somebody who's um, maybe read like Vanderkolk or maybe just heard like, oh, we need to understand a little bit the more brain. of the brain and integrate that into therapy. And I thought this was, um, it's at the age, or it's at the end of the age of the brain. Yeah, the decade, the decade of, the of the brain, brain yeah. which is the 90s. And it's a sort of overview of just basic concepts that I think will mm-hmm. help yeah. in how therapists can integrate some brain knowledge mm-hmm. into therapy and sort of conceptualize their clients in a more um, neurobiologically informed manner. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. um, that was my desire with this article. Like we said, we were talking about this article beforehand, and it has a lot that probably won't get touched mm-hmm. on. Um, Which is the nature of this podcast. Yes. Like, yeah. There's no way that we can yeah. cover it. It's all a synthesis the for yes. sure. Yes. If we wanted so. to do it justice, we would read each line, reflect on it together, <laughs> yes. and then yes. pick back and up. And we would be here for nine hours. Yeah. yeah. Which that yeah. sounds great. I mean, that but would be a, a day well spent. I know. I, I like you guys, um, but. <laughs> yeah. We'd have collective eating breaks. And yeah, yes. exactly. Um, maybe another podcast. But one thing I do want to say to listeners is that uh, Bruce Perry has a series of YouTube videos on YouTube that are um, phenomenal, Mm -hmm. um, where he just kind of walks through his neurosequential model and explains the concepts that are in this article as well as subsequent studies he's done um, and just for this uh, episode and especially since we're like right at the beginning if we could just give like a working definition Mm -hmm. of neurosequential Neurosequential. I think it's so important and it sounds well once you break down the parts of the word I think it gets a lot more easier to understand but at the beginning it's kind of sounding like oh I don't what does that mean it's a big word yeah neurosequential I appreciate you neuro and sequence yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. neuro and sequence are kind of the etymological Mm -hmm. parts parts of the word um, neuro being brain and sequence as in a sort of linear firing or activation yeah um, Mm -hmm. that happens how do you say that without using the word I know that's hard um Pattern. Pattern. Yeah. Progressively. Yeah. progressively. A progressive yeah. pattern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And with, so. And I think that's an important part with a beginning and an end, but it's not necessarily linear to where mm-hmm. it doesn't just stop when it gets to the end. It yeah. kind of mm-hmm. circles back to the beginning mm-hmm. again. And now we're starting to get a neurosequential mm-hmm. development. Yeah. Which is how Perry kind of conceptualizes. 
yeah the way the brain builds yeah. over time yeah and where memories come from which is and, what we're going to get into yeah and he's also created a model of therapeutics right that is for clinicians as well as teachers yeah social workers all kinds of people so um yeah it's a very dense model mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. yeah but so rich mm-hmm. so good yeah so reading through this article mm. there were kind of a few main things that i think collectively stood out to all of us mm. which you know i would kind of like to maybe highlight those and start with some of the the biggies that mm. we identified yeah. as oh that that's important we want everybody to get that point yeah uh-huh. Yeah, and the first one is uh, three words and is so provocative. <laughs> and that is that everything is memory. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Perry does in the first, um, I don't know, section, subsection, because it doesn't actually have a, a heading title, but he basically defines memory. And his most basic definition of memory that gets more complex as the article goes along is the carrying of information across time. Mm -hmm. And so his idea is that, um, and and he kind of at at small points critiques the idea that memory is pure linguistic and explicit cognitive cognitive, Mm -hmm. um, and goes for this idea of the carrying of information across time. It relates, um, he says, it's the foundation of every biological process from reproduction to gene expression to cell division from receptor-mediated yeah. communication to the development of more complex physiological systems, which include your brain, your nervous system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, I think, to some therapists, maybe the blow-up of yeah. memory. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're not just talking about the thing that you talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or what you can necessarily remember. Yeah, yeah explicitly. Yeah. I, think, I think kind of recategorizing memory as any information stored in our nervous system and that comes in multiple forms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but everything that our system references to make decisions to um, react to things even our reflexes are all referencing memory yes Mm -hmm. just not necessarily the narrative and cognitive memory that we're used to working with as therapists meaning you know, I can tell a story that makes sense from beginning to end. And it's kind of like hearing somebody describe a movie. That is just one kind of information and yeah. one kind of memory. But he really that expands is, that. is altered and changed. Mm-hmm. And it, it may not be necessarily exactly what happened. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. what yeah. your body and mind cared about. Right. And in the happening, mm-hmm. in the experience. And that's yeah. what Perry talks about is that all experience is memory. Mm-hmm. Memory is all experience. And yeah. and I think one thing that's really relevant for therapists is that any time that we interact with a memory yeah. through any method, whether it be verbally processing it with someone, recalling it on our own, any time that we activate that memory and access that information, we are creating changes in it. Mm. But, you know, when yeah. it is in a state of activation, it is primed and ready to then be changed, which mm-hmm. is super significant and explains yes. a lot of the process of what we see in uh, trauma treatment. Yeah. And Memory reconsolidation. Yeah, reconsolidation. Yeah. And, you know, he speaks to it in a very literal sense of when we do that, we are changing brain structure because mm-hmm. brain structure is memory. Yeah. yeah. And memory is brain structure. And I, I really liked that kind of. Um, blending of these concepts because I think it helps us understand, you know, so much of what we 
deal with as therapists is anything that we're doing that is activating that information and manipulating it in any way creates real substantial change in the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, what that brings up for me, and this may be going a little bit. I have a feeling we're going to like jump ahead in the article and then we'll come back. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm you myself is wanting to, I just went to the appendices in the article. You like, did. And you went to, very to end. <laughs> something that I think is just so beautiful. Yeah. So why don't you do that? Cause I think line's going to come around. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. in what Mel was saying of it creates structural changes when we go back to it, Neuro, the, the importance of understanding neurosequentiality mm-hmm. in that process is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, <laughs> It's hard. I wish I could like. I wish we did have cameras right now because I need to like visually like. I know you want to like point to parts of your your head. Yes, exactly. Um, So as memories come out, think of the top of your head. That's kind of where your awareness of your memory is Mm -hmm. coming from. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that's where the memory started. That doesn't mean where that memory is being kept. That doesn't you know all Mm -hmm. of those things. We have this fallacy of, well, we think we know it. So it's like this, the front top of our head. I feel like maybe an analogy could be useful here and something along the lines of a, the experience of watching something on a projector. Yeah. And watching something. Yeah. Watching the screen with my eyeballs is not actually where the information is stored and existing. Right. At all. It is simply the illumination of that information that is actually on the, what are they, the roll thing. What's that? (laughs) Uh, real the, the real. real there we go well, that's an old uh, <laughs> that's yeah. A, yeah. well yeah i'm old yeah it's it's Older. in the the fiber optics cable there, no. there we go okay <laughs> yes. okay yes. welcome to the, the 21st digitized century. memory right. yeah. disc or so, whatever <laughs> yeah so working with that analogy you know you can augment what's on the screen but that's not necessarily going to change what was encoded in the file creation that's right. And uh, this article, he's got in the appendices this kind of like inverted triangle. And so at the bottom, which we use triangles a lot, so I love that. But at the bottom of the inverted triangle, so it's a triangle that's like on its head, is the brain stem, and then it's got the midbrain, the limbic brain, and then the cortical brain. Mm -hmm. So that's building up in the brain. So if you think of in the back of your neck, you've got your brain stem, and if you go up just a little bit to kind of like right behind your eyes all the way back there, you're getting into the midbrain and the limbic brain, and then you go up, you continue to the more top part of your head, and you're getting into the cortices or the neocortical areas. And so that's relevant in a neurosequential understanding of changing memory because when we start reprocessing things and changing, quote unquote, the structures of the brain, it has to work its way down. Mm -hmm. And that becomes increasingly difficult Mm -hmm. um, because of something called neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and the integrity of the neurosequential construction of the brain. Mm -hmm. That means that the deeper down we get, the less open to change the structures are Mm -hmm. over time because their, their integrity, their uh, concrete stability stability mm-hmm. is what gives us feelings of um, congruence mm-hmm. or like I know what I'm talking about I know who I am I know what's happening I know what's real I know what's not real mm-hmm. the more loose those things start to get the the uh, kind of looser the grasp of reality we have mm-hmm. so yes and to that point is that when we are using modalities that work more directly with those lower, deeper, yes. uh, more fundamental basic brain regions like the brainstem, when we find ways of working there and manage to get change at that level, 
the result of that is much more profound, long lasting. Mm -hmm. Um, and more importantly than either of those two things is that it does not require top down management in a conscious way. Right. The change is spontaneous and emergent. And, you know, so clients very practically will say things like, Oh, yeah, I mean, I I didn't even notice, but suddenly I find myself responding totally different in this yeah. situation than I normally would have. Yeah. And it wasn't through any effort or energy or mm. trying to change the way they thought about the situation or thinking it through. It was simply spontaneous that mm-hmm. they responded differently than they normally would have because those lower brain regions hold those really lightning fast activation patterns. Yeah. And when those begin to change, then the lightning fast activation patterns are different and we get a totally different set of emotional responses, behavior patterns and thinking patterns as a result of those lower region changes. Yeah, which has everything to do with how you see yourself and how you see other people and reality unfolding around you. What were you going to... Well, I was going to say the reason they can respond differently is why I think Perry wrote this article Mm -hmm. is that his kind of secondary thesis is that fear is a, a... huge driver in your system yeah and when these early in these early life experiences where fear is implanted in these subcortical these lower regions of the brain Mm -hmm. as sensation and sensed experience yeah become filtered into your uh lower regions of the brain the brainstem the diencephalon which is kind of loosely the mid brain and then your limbic system you have this sort of behavioral activation that can happen as a result of fear Mm -hmm. much quicker which then yeah presents itself this is kind of getting into poncepts work and stuff it you you engage more of your environment more Mm -hmm. quickly so which your brain is not being able to make sense of as quickly yeah but when you begin to shift the neural architecture around fear activation in those lower regions of the brain your body is able to sit with your environment and the experience and let it bloom to the Mm -hmm. highest regions of your brain Mm -hmm. more frequently and easily. So we we defined memory at the very beginning, but we didn't say anything about fear. Mm -hmm. So I want us to talk about what fear actually is in a neurosequential understanding. Um, What is fear? And Caleb, I'm gonna like just softball up (laughs) for you. Caleb, define fear for us within this context. And why is it related to memory? I don't know if you feel uh, well there's part of me that thinks uh, sorry i'm a nine so like part <laughs> of me is nine. thinking that you have an answer that you want me to say and <laughs> no. now i'm panicked about no do saying not panic. It. i want to hear your okay. understanding of fear. my understanding of fear would be that there is um so in the brainstem you have your homeostatic um systems in your midbrain you have your um it's where the th- uh, thalamic and hypothalamic um, sort of body orientation, proprioception, mm-hmm. um, those sort of networks are there. And then you have your midbrain, which is very social. Yeah. Um, and it's or, or your limbic system, which is very socially social. oriented. It's, it's where secondary. attachment is going to yeah. come mm-hmm. into a lot yeah. of play. And it's where the other begins to mesh with the self in a way that it's helpful yeah. for the self's yeah. self-continuity. Yes. Which is there. Wow, that was a sentence. But... Um, where fear comes in is is the moment at which the self meets its potential like lack mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. it can't help itself and 
the other is inept to help the self. Yes. And so then the fear. It's helplessness. Yeah, the fear is implanted in that it needs a new set of activation that protects the self. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I want to maybe synthesize what you just said and then talk about this sentence. Because I felt very chunky. No, 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 it was good. It was good. So here's a sentence, and we can talk about how we feel about this. Fear is connected to the level of tolerance of potential threat before our safety strategies are activated. So what... Say one more time. Yes. So tolerance of potential threat before our safety strategies are activated. I think there's something in this that, for me, when I think about fear, um, it's somewhat of an inability to accurately predict Mm -hmm. what is about to unfold or what will happen or accurately evaluate our resources in face of potential threat i think that so the anticipation has to take place before we're able to assess our uh amount of resources or even our availability to them because that's how we're going to know what to pair with the unfolding so that that requires a accurate or mostly accurate evaluation of the potential threat. Yeah, which is a lot of assumptions. A lot of assumptions. And then again, we have a lot of assumptions around accurate or close to accurate evaluation of our potential resources. Yes. And it's in it's in the pairing mm-hmm. of those two yeah. things. I must evaluate the threat and then I evaluate my resources. And if the threat is larger than my resources. Oh boy, we got a problem. Fear. Mm-hmm. That's where fear comes in. Yeah. And and you talked about assumptions and yeah. Perry would talk about associations, yes. the associative mm-hmm. tendency of the brain. and it's, yeah. How do we make it, those evaluations in the first place? Yeah. It's entirely experience dependent. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. based on mm-hmm. the past. And if you mm-hmm. have those early experiences where your, in, your internal and external, external resources are more often lacking in the face of some sort of threat, yeah. then you're more easily activated because your yes. associations will be loose. Even in potential safety. This is so funny that my brain is thinking about this. Do you guys know the Farmer's Almanac? Yeah. This is, I think, a fantastic case study in the... (laughs) um, Evaluation of threat and resources? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It seriously is. Do you know what the Farmer's Almanac is, Caleb? Um, Very loosely. (laughs) I think I have like a more voodoo understanding of it. Okay, so I grew up in like in central kansas Mm -hmm. and people live by that almanac my dad did not care about the weather channel he would look at the farmer's almanac Mm -hmm. that's that's how and it was more accurate Mm -hmm. than was the weather channel Mm -hmm. and dad would just say yeah that's that's why we have it Mm -hmm. it's like totally why are you not freaking out right now (laughs) that's something that was written 10 years ago uh-huh. is more accurate for today's weather than is the weather channel. Uh-huh. And it's because we have studied we've studied novelty in our environment. Novelty and lack of novelty yes. patterns. And then comparing that to every day. Mhm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the farmer's almanac uh, just from your reaction I'm sensing I need to define it. Not, not it everybody is. knows it, so go ahead and define it. Well, so basically it's it, it's what to expect mm-hmm. uh, yeah. weather-wise from, from yeah. the day, yeah. Yeah. Um, given the time of year and the, the season that you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and those that it will actually talk about the, the kind of temperature or the precipitation mm-hmm. or whatever. Humidity, yeah. yeah, that's based on just history unfolding mm-hmm. of, well, for the past however long we've been paying attention, this day and this month – has resulted in this kind of weather. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a great 
case study of we're really paying attention to the unfolding of reality and linking it to something that we can reliably or at least somewhat reliably predict mm-hmm. unfolding. If something would happen, which occasionally it did, where the Farmer's Almanac was wrong, mm-hmm. Dad was worried about it. Mm-hmm. He was like, kind of, he had a, you know, I don't, um, this is weird. This is not what I expected from it's today. challenging mm-hmm. his basic Yeah, exactly. It's like, yes. this isn't right. I'm reflecting on this written record of what I thought was going to happen today, and it didn't happen mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which produced... A at least low-key fear response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My predictive ability has been challenged, and now I am in a state of overwhelm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It I just is. thought of that. That's a good one. Anyway, what do so, you think? <laughs> no, I, I love it. I, yeah. There, I have a lot of personal like experience of farmers, farmer's almanacs, and they're nothing like that. So. Nothing like that? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry to... They're just that, at the like... end of the aisle at Home Depot, and you kind of leave through them, and you <laughs> oh, say, like, yeah. oh, next week's going to be kind of thunderstorms. Ah. Cool. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. okay Grandpa. And my mom's yeah. like, okay, come on, come That's on. Right. Move along. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a, a phrase and a term that I think a lot of therapists are maybe used to hearing would be window of tolerance. Yeah. And I think that's a really relevant concept here because when we're talking about this, you know, constant evaluation that our nervous systems are doing and, you know, analyzing threat, potential threat, um, assumed threat, Mm -hmm. et cetera, but then also evaluating resources, it is that equation that results in a individual's window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. When we say window of tolerance and we're talking about somebody that has a small window of tolerance, what what we're saying is they over perceive threat and they under evaluate resources. Mm -hmm. And for someone that has a very large window of tolerance in terms of what material can they work with without feeling overwhelmed and their fear response getting um, too intense for them to continue, that would mean that they have a a much more accurate, or in some cases, they actually have an under-evaluation of potential threat. Um, But health Mm -hmm. would say an accurate evaluation of potential threat plus an accurate evaluation of their resources at their disposal. And when those things come out and the equation says, yeah, my resources can handle this challenge, the fear response in the system naturally lowers and that window of tolerance is much greater and therefore we can do a lot more work um, and access more material without overwhelming their system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A useful corollary. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a good place to just pause for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you guys want to go next in this conversation? I feel like there's so well, many yeah. bits. There, there are so <laughs> many bits. So we've what we've talked about is everything is memory mm-hmm. and then fear and memory and how fear relates to the ongoing um, development of memory, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting that mm-hmm. I don't know if, as I say that, I was like, oh, we hadn't made that explicit, but mm-hmm. your, uh, the, the embeddedness of fear deep within your uh, neurobiological development and yeah. those lower systems can be a perpetuating development of ongoing fear representations yes. in your world. Yes. yes. So the, the three-year-old who never develops different paradigms of, um, internal working models of safety mm-hmm. and security and then mm-hmm. a view of themselves which can handle different environments yeah the associative networks yes. are very loose this in goes that. back to our first episode of the crindon article yes yeah. yeah 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 and and that can by the time that complexifies and the person is making narrative of those deeply associated fear networks yeah um i mean you, you're talking about mountains of fear potentially yes and fear being 
you know, the, the more strict definition of uh, the perception of um, novelty that is yes. um, un- unable to be uh, weathered. Yeah, in a exactly. Way. Yeah. Um, uh, it can't be tolerated. Tolerated, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. And the uh, when I'm working with my clients, I'll talk about this as like a big box of proof mm-hmm. uh, for why a certain behavior must be utilized or why a certain strategy of a given situation might, must be utilized mm-hmm. because given their evaluation of the situation, which may or not may or not be realistic or accurate, the brain actually doesn't really care mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. It says, based on my lived experience, mm-hmm. I'm using this strategy because I think I'm if I don't, something bad is going to happen or I might be, I might incur harm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm going to use this strategy and I have all of this lived experience that's going to justify my utilization of this strategy, Mm -hmm. my big box of proof, which Mm -hmm. are these, uh, this mountain of fear that you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Mm. I think this would be a good time to transition into the next section because I feel my, um, as you mentioned that, I, I think of a clinical example where I want to drift more and more into, let's get to explicit yeah. memories of fear. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure that we're grounded in a sort of neurosequential approach. Yes. And make sure that Perry's guiding us in this. Yeah. And so then the next step would be to talk about the types of memory. Mm-hmm. And Perry outlines four. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I wrestle through my I know you paper, guys will hear our papers moving. And Bridger's scrolling. <laughs> so Perry talks about four different types of memory and then kind of does a, a brief outline of how each is um, tends to be formed and then also manifested. Um, the first one would be cognitive memories, which arise uh, from use-dependent changes in patterns of activity present in cognition. So that would be like cognition would be like abstract concepts such as names, phone numbers, um, language is an abstraction of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so more explicit memories mm-hmm. would be the cognitive memory. Would you guys equate that with narrative memory? Like the the way that we tell ourselves stories about what's happened to us would be under the umbrella of cognitive memory. Yeah, of the four, yes. I would mm-hmm. say. It's yeah. the closest to it. I think narrative has like... Uh, like ratios mm-hmm. of them mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. your your narrative is making sense of the four mm-hmm. as you experience them. Okay. But I think it's predominantly what we would associate with cognitive because right. it's coming out of the neurosequential process. Well, and maybe, maybe the distinction of in narrative, we're usually narrating for someone else. And so by having to articulate the memory, yes, it's going to run through that more cognitive layer of memory but that might be different if we're kind of sitting with ourselves and reflecting on our experience that might have a higher ratio of some of these other versions of memory that we're going to talk about yeah 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 Yeah, i think narrative so is so powerful because it can often have a quality if it's integrated narrative Mm -hmm. that it connotes and implies affect and sensed Body experience, yes. Yes. imaged yes. memory. Yeah, and I love your distinction that if it's integrated. Yeah. Because I think when what that means is that it, an, uh, kind of disintegrated memory would likely be lacking significantly or yeah. perhaps even entirely omitting uh, one form of memory. Mm-hmm. You'd just be telling me a story of something horrific and you'd have seemingly no activation around yeah. it. Which, which interestingly is enough, is the goal of narrative therapy. I would say, 
That's an interesting <laughs> critique. It is. I think it's a personal critique. Bad narrative therapy. Bad narrative therapy. That, that promotes a, disintegrated. Yes, it yeah. promotes mm-hmm. disintegration because I think it good, overly yeah. relies on cognitive memory almost to the intentional exclusion of some of the others. Like we're trying yeah. to lower the level of activation in the telling of the story and we think we're desensitizing, but actually we're disintegrating the narration. Yeah, that is a scam. Yeah. I mean, I say that everywhere I go (laughs) when I talk about narrative therapy, (laughs) I spend a lot of time trying to put people back together after they've gone through narrative therapy. Just saying. (laughs) Bad narrative therapy. Bad narrative therapy. I think that there are much more. Yes, there's more integrated versions of it that are very, very therapeutic. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Very much. And I would fight for it. I know. I know know you like it, Caleb. We'll fight about that later. Okay. Okay. It's out of love, though. Yes. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with the fact that it could be very disintegrated. So uh, cognitive memory was the first one. Mm. The second one was motor vestibular memories, Mm -hmm. which arise from use-dependent activation of the motor vestibular parts of the brain. Yes. Um, I remember learning about this in my undergrad program, and it mm -hmm. was chalked up merely to this sort of auto-conscious enactment of memory, like driving a car. Like Mm. you spend a lot of time thinking about it early on, but then eventually it uh, just gets... Uh, kind of transcended into these oh. mindless okay. mm. uh, uh, motor, um, like riding a bike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't. I don't. That's one of the that things is, he gives yeah. as an example. Right. Typing. But I don't know. I don't love that siloing. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. neurosequentially, I cannot stress that enough. Like it is the it's the intersubjectivity of the brain. Mm-hmm. Essentially, mm-hmm. <laughs> is what it is. Mm-hmm. That each of the processes, um, being that of the the brainstem the midbrain, the limbic brain, and uh, the cognitive brain of what Perry uses, all of those influence one another. So it's not just motor by itself. So I think that there's one piece of this because he highlights the vestibular sense. Yes. And uh, um, back in the 90s, there was another researcher, um, Babette Rothschild. You guys remember her? Mm -hmm. Oh, I do. (laughs) The body remembers. And she talks about uh, the vestibular sense with memory. And she gives examples of that, which I think is helpful in understanding how this is relevant when we're working with clients that vestibular memory has to do with the positioning of your body in space. Mm. Where, where is my body in space? And we're going to talk about state memory in a minute. And state is similar to this in some ways, but I think a distinction is helpful. Yeah, it's interrelated. Yes. But yeah. So, yeah. so this gets really relevant in traumatology when we're talking about, um, well, a good example would be um a woman that goes to the doctor's office yeah okay and uh, she's probably a little bit anxious anyway but then the minute that the doctor asks her to lay back on the table mm. her level of activation in her system just shoots through the roof yeah and it is actually the motion of laying back which is part of the vestibular sense yeah. she knows the entire time that she's yeah. going to have to lay down it's not like oh my gosh this is new information mm-hmm. totally right? unexpected yeah no 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 it's it is the act of laying down that changes the orientation of her body in space and creates that cascade of activation from the bottom up in her brain it's such a good word it's a great one it's so yeah anyway it's beautiful (laughs) it does we talk about cascade um but i yeah and i I think that that is kind of a good example of how this is relevant to us is that when we're talking to clients about uh triggers and activations they're they're the position of their body within space in a given experience in that is memory example, why would why would the motor memory mm-hmm. register as a threat the last time 
or the scariest time mm -hmm. yes. that I laid back in this fashion with a man standing next to me did not end well. Yep. Yeah. So just given that one element, mm -hmm. you know, nothing just else matches that vestibular potentially. Sense. Yeah. Just yep. the change in orientation yes. to yes. uprightness, my body sends me into a threat mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is why the body cares about memory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It holds that to say, we. this is too close to yes. the last time that we were completely annihilated. Yes, yes. No, we're not, not going to let this happen. Yeah. yeah, and all of my cognition can tell me, but this is different, this is insane, this is a doctor, this is the job. To me. Yeah, like I decided to be here. All of that cognition is powerless against the motor memory and the fear activation coming from the bottom up saying, this is dangerous, get the hell out of here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Perry also identifies the opposite of mm -hmm. an example in therapy where a child um, is yes. um, sort of activated and crawls into a fetal position mm -hmm. on the floor. Using the vestibular sense to regulate. Yeah, to so regulate it's the nervous calm. system's yes. attempt to find. So what's happening there is the, the prenatal yeah. um, motor vestibular experience of being wrapped in a warm body mm -hmm. And in the fetal position. And often they will rock, which yeah. is also part of vestibular memory. Is more mm -hmm. primal than whatever the fear they were right. experiencing. And so the system is, and this is so beautiful that the body does this. Yes. The system is attempting to reignite this yes. neural sequential oh, firing. Go back to the last time you were really safe. Oh, man. That's deeper foundation. Yeah. I think that is like yeah. the, the key point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we are out of resources at this moment. Mm -hmm. When do we know the, the most poignant example of safety, of safety and regulation? Yes. And it how was can literally we, in the womb. Yes. And mm -hmm. how can we evoke the visceral sense mm -hmm. of that to give us some regulation in this mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right which, back to which the Which is just fascinating because it doesn't matter how old we get, doesn't matter what gender we are, doesn't, doesn't, none of that matters. When we are terrified out of our mind, we will drop to the ground, hug our knees and rock. Like yeah. that is what humans do. Or if you, sick. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, yeah. holding yourself on the bathroom floor when you're ill Even and, you know, wishing that your mom was there. Heartache is, or yes, something like yes, that. Yes. We like, rock. Oh, like yeah. your body just naturally turns inward, your shoulders mm -hmm. lean in. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you sort of like shrivel. Curl around yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which brings up just such a beautiful point, kind of now synthesizing Perry's work of in the arena of therapeutics, um, engaging. And, and there's a lot of emphasis on somatic therapies right now. Mm -hmm. and, but truly engaging the neural sequential power of your client system. Mm -hmm. And sometimes maybe it's just how do we embody deeper safety? Mm. What would it be like if we just like got on the floor yeah. and curled up? Yeah. Or and, that last or, week. Yeah. I had a client that was like, could I just lay down on your couch? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was working with a blank. Yeah. I was working with a boy uh, and his mother um, a couple weeks ago, and we've been doing this. This is actually a really interesting. I think I told you about this, yep. Caleb. This is kind of why I brought it up. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> Do you want me to just do You're this? Okay, him up. I'll tell the story. Job. Yeah. So, uh, working with this mother and child, and um, the child uh, has a lot of hyperactivity in his system and uses a lot of the sympathetic nervous system to um, at least other regulate so mm -hmm. that he can be um, kind of out of the scene. But in our processing together, he will go through this like shutdown or feigned shutdown where he'll uh, be processing and I'll ask him to attune, you know, I'll invite him to attune to his mother saying like, what was it like to watch her feel that way? Or what was it like for her to connect with you that way? And he'll look at me and say, it makes me want to die. And so he'll stand up and like fall to the ground. 
um, and in a way of like sabotaging the yeah. session, like wanting yeah. to shut it down. Mm-hmm. But in that process, we've learned as a group, the three of us, that if we go with it and we use it to let him start shaping the environment, that it can actually become a regulating experience. And in this, the most recent session, um, we ended up where the three of us had our own pillows and our own blankets by his direction, you know, just kind of going with him each piece, mm-hmm. had our own pillows and our own blankets laying on the ground with my the, the lights off. Mm-hmm. And just like each of us in this really uh, restful. restful, nurturing, yeah. cozy. Yeah. You know, can just we activate the parasympathetic in a group setting? With the three wow. of us together. Yeah. yeah. And there's so, so much backstory to that of yeah. why it was so incredible. But um, yeah. that's a great example of how using all of the states of memory, we yeah. were able to create a situation in which he could experience regulation that was both intrapersonal, mm-hmm. so himself, and interpersonal mm-hmm. with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just beautiful as a therapist to trust. So his words were saying one thing. Yeah. I just want to die. Mm-hmm. And he and, falls down. And that's kind of like probably even the way he said it. So the affective memory yeah, yeah. is probably has an air of like, let's just cut this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's something about like following that deeper the body. Yes. And saying, okay, I think something is happening below these things that are sort of interpersonally meant yeah. to provoke. Yes. Which is probably a strategy he's used oh, and, that yes, works absolutely. really well in that family yeah. unit. Let's, well to continue to disintegrate. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Works yeah. well to yeah, continue the dysfunction, but adaptive. Oh, very much. So. Oh, um, anyway, but <laughs> um Crittenden anyway. <laughs> a little callback, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> but yeah, to trust the body. And yeah. I bet and and I'm just wondering, like how, how many times did you consciously your observing self go, this is insane? Mm. Like, it, this doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. This is somewhat chaotic. It was, it's utterly chaotic. And not to mention the mother is completely overwhelmed by this experience. Yeah. Like yeah, well, I was is... going to say, you you may have awareness mm-hmm. of what's happening, but that is definitely the inner dialogue of the mother. Like, yeah. what the heck is happening? Yeah, <laughs> and as he would fall to the ground, you know, she just, like, stares at me just like, like how is this therapy? Yeah, what, yes. are, you, what are we going to do now? Yeah. Like, how did we get here? And this is what always happens. Yes. And how do we get out of this? Mm-hmm. But yes. of trusting that the body was telling us the direction that it needed to go mm-hmm. and was certain that we would reject him in doing. Right. Right. But when we attune to it. So I feel like this is a perfect example of working with the natural fear states of activation mm. that showed up, right? So you call attention to vulnerability, intimacy in relationship with his mother. Yeah. That immediately creates that cascade of activation in his system that says, yeah. no, 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 no. This yep. is not a thing that we do. Yep. I get teased for this. I get ridiculed Especially for this. Especially when a man points yes, out the exactly. connection between he and his mother. Exactly. Like, I don't want to be a mama's boy, et cetera. Yeah. So instead, I'm going to reject that part of me and decide to die, et cetera. Yeah. But by leaning into that state of activation yes. and providing a sense of, no, we have the resources to handle this. Yes. We can together ride this we can out do together. This. Yeah. In that moment, what was occurring for him is an expansion of his window of tolerance. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the mother's too, because okay. she was in a state of activation. Yeah. And I think ours as yeah, a group. Collectively, yeah. the three of you. The intersubjective space with yeah, us. Yeah, learning how to manage that, that fear activation in his system and then move through it to a state of actual regulation, yes. not dismissal and denial or yes. rejecting the fear, 
Yes. But moving through it together and finding calm in a really organic way, yeah, yeah. which then provides healing to his system. And now is that disconfirming experience and his brain is going to respond to that and structurally change, yeah. which is where Perry goes with, you know, this is what happens when we have experiences is that we begin to change structurally. And now that is embedded in his system yeah. forever That's and right. ever. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The hope of neuroscience. Yeah. Yes. Caleb, you're so, smiling. Why are you, why are you well, smiling? Because we need to we need to keep going because we're getting jacked on just the motor vestibular. Know, and there's more. Know, okay, so, so the next one, and uh, the reason I was smiling is because I just read the words. Affective <laughs> memories, uh, which he says result from eustependent changes and neuronal patterns of activity present during specific emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. And he gives grief, fear, and mirth, which mm-hmm. uh, that's a nice Scrabble word for everyone mirth? out there. Yeah. Um, but one of the things he does is he makes a little tiny comment that I just want to point out. Yes. Is that these affective memories will often present themselves as first impressions or transference. I love that note. Oh. Yeah. Which is like, I think Bridger and I and our deep appreciation for inner subjectivity are just like this is like what we love nailed it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's something that confuses a lot of people so so let me ask a question on behalf of the listeners why does it present that way why does affective memory emotional memory in particular present as transference and first impressions yeah so i think using neurosequential the neurosequential model these affective memories are in the in the transitory networks between the midbrain and the limbic system mm-hmm. yes and also expand up into the the cortical regions mm-hmm. but because they are there in the neurosequential activation of your sensing the presence of an other and engaging with an other yes i'm going to be activated to certain behavioral manifestations so i'm mm-hmm. going to i'm going to be charged to do certain behaviors mm-hmm. based on my perception and interpretation of what's happening right between us right and often what that, uh, yeah, what that comes up as is almost these port key experiences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in which you do something that sends me back in time. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then you become the object of some. Right. So now I'm interacting. Emotional experience in the past. Yeah. Which I'm interacting with you yeah. like I interacted with that person from my history and all of this affect and emotion is coming up in response to my past yes. as if it were occurring in the present. Because, yeah. and I want to point out the, the, like the brain is built around trying to solve uh, for safety mm-hmm. and solve, I mean, solve like in an, in an equational model anticipatory machine yes exactly prediction making machine well and i think it's really relevant to point out here that that emotional memory the emotional structures of the brain are in the midbrain which is the mammalian brain we are mammals and mammals are very very concerned about relationship and herd dynamics right. and power dynamics so, and so in a state where we are met with another mammal yeah. of our own species that region of the brain is going to kick into high gear and all of the strategies of the mammalian brain yeah. come into play. We have another opportunity mm-hmm. to try to solve this mm-hmm. problem that we experienced Relationships. Before. Yes. Yeah. yes. And How do I stay safe in relationships? Yeah, because yeah. whatever's happening right now is similar enough to bring me back, to, be, to, to turn into a porky, to bring me back to this time where these characteristics were present and I was wounded or deeply confused mm-hmm. or something happened mm-hmm. that I couldn't understand. So without saying it and without maybe even being consciously aware, which is where he uses that word yeah. transference yeah. Mm-hmm. of um, without even being consciously aware, I'm going to just enact 
Well, rarely are we consciously aware. Right. I would say 90% of the time, unless we're, we've done a lot of therapy and have a lot of awareness of this, we're not doing this right. consciously. And it doesn't even register to us that maybe this other person is not actually any of these things that I'm assuming. Exactly. It, like we don't know how to differentiate that. Our initial impression of a person, we take that to be valid because the affect state is so powerful and is so convincing to us of that reality. To me, and I'm sorry if this gets us off track, um, but to me, Caleb will keep us on track. Don't yeah, worry. Please do. Crack the whip there. <laughs> Don't let it go, Caleb. You're in charge tonight. Just, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Go okay. ahead. When you put a peacemaker in charge of cracking the whip, yeah, not exactly. much happens. So you used, in uh, um, Mel, when you were talking, you, you kind of gave reference to the intention of the subconscious mm-hmm. e- evoking of this memory. Mm hmm. And to me, and this is just a hypothesis that I carry and I'm continually trying to work on, is I think we often assume that it's us trying to navigate through the present situation safely. Mm-hmm. But I think there's perhaps an earlier, um, maybe even more important to the neurosequential development of the brain that says, I'm actually trying to go back in time and understand the past. So I think that based on Perry's definition of memory, it is both and neither. Yes. Like our, our brain regions and memory do not distinguish between past and present in the way that our conscious self does. I and so, <laughs> so the enactment that mm-hmm. we are in is a, a combination of past and present material. And that's why an emphasis. Yes. And, yeah. and the, um, that is part of why there is a second diagnosis of complex PTSD because that is how we get this layering effect in our in our brain structure of fear upon fear upon fear, trauma upon trauma upon trauma. So in my enactment, my reenactment of my past in the present, this once again doesn't work. Once again, mm. I am under threat. And now I have a new layer of complication that is embedded into that brain structure. And so now when my future experience triggers that same activation pattern, I'm now referencing the first thing that happened to me and that second bad thing that happened to me. Mm. And eventually I've got a third and a fourth and a 20th and a you know, 90th, all within this category of um, relationship experience with this kind of human being. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a really accurate definition of complex trauma. And part of the reason why it's so difficult to treat, it's not one isolated incident that caused the problem. It is the layering effect that shapes a whole human nervous system into what it is, which is a traumatized and fractured nervous system that is always in reaction to its past um, and trying to resolve both the past and the present and whatever comes in mm-hmm. next. Yeah, it's it is solving the present mm-hmm. because it has solved the past. Yes, mm-hmm. in we, the way that it is going to, and that's where I act. think it's more of a primary goal. And once again, it's really foggy of which one's secondary, which one's primary. Mm-hmm. But if we can if we can understand the past, that means that we have a higher degree of uh, certainty that our current or present strategy is going to be effective. Um, in our utilization mm-hmm. of that strategy. Because mm-hmm. I know that it worked in the past, I'm more certain that it's going to work in the present. And right. in an experience where we were overwhelmed in the past and we used this uh, enactment of uh, mm-hmm. transference or that first impression that he was talking about mm-hmm. in the emotional memory, we can go back in time in the present mm-hmm. 
and I'm hoping making sense. We always go back in time in the present. Like that that yeah. is what Perry is talking about is that yeah. life is a continual experience of time traveling through our present Freaking experiences. Well, uh, yeah, the past invades yes. the present. And constantly, yeah. constantly. And, and our future worries. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Bridger, you used a word, know, knowing mm-hmm. that the past, like your strategy in the past worked. Yeah. And I, I, I want to like dive a little deeper into that because I think that goes to the fourth type of memory, state. which is Thank state you, memory. <laughs> Getting us back on track. Did so you see smooth. how nice so, of a whip so that was? It was a caress. Yeah. Yeah. whipping yes. ever. Yeah, yes. you just put it on the table and it was just yeah. like, hey, hey I don't have to use it. I know, it. Yes. No, you just got to know that it's there. So state memories you can think about. This is uh, very related to the brainstem and the uh, uh, homostasis. The, the um, very basic states, to me, recalls Uh, polyvagal theory as a really good foundation for this but um, what he's talking about is these state regulating parts of the brain uh, for um, that is sensitizing chronic or prolonged Um, so you have restful states you have activated states you have shutdown states and to me the way you because that word no yes previous strategies and behaviors worked that you're you're talking about a sort of core conscious that goes beyond explicit understanding. Yes. And what you're talking about is that the body and the deeper parts of the brain know yeah, by right. the state shift yeah. that occurred. So at some point, the strategy allowed for there to be a state shift that was more homeostatic. Yeah, towards regulation. Towards mm-hmm. regulation. Uh, even if it doesn't get all the way there. Right, right, right. Um, because that's where the chronic prolonged stress comes that's in. That's right. Um, roots but of PTSD? Roots of PTSD. For another sure. callback that's right. from the first episode. <laughs> um, we're just making sure you guys get a nice little uh, repetitive action. It's just going to build on itself. Uh, great pedagogy. Kind of like the great. brain, and we're back here. And we're back. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but that is a, a sort of way in which um, – all of the sort of different kinds of memories, I think, mm. find their sort of usefulness is in mm-hmm. this the state memory, which is um, understanding how how your system is working towards feeling more yeah. homeostatic or um, equalized. Yes, uh, in an equilibrium. And that, to me, the the term usefulness um, answers the question of why the brain cares so much about memory, mm-hmm. because it finds them useful. Mm-hmm. useful for predicting and knowing how to adjust the current situation or my reaction or presence in the current mm-hmm. situation because which, it finds them useful. Which is such another callback to last week yeah. of understanding the adaptability yes. of these lower parts of the brain where, for what Perry would say, where fear is embedded. Mm-hmm. Recognizing that it is there because it needed to find some sort of safety yes. and some sort of regulation. And so it created yeah. a path. Oh, my gosh. And a, a, it organized its systems in such a way that was functional for the time and useful for the time. And now you find that you're, the client most likely finds that they're in an environment in which the association to fear yeah. is too... Uh, loose yes mm. and so then it's creating dissonance in their interpersonal mm-hmm. and intrapersonal life yeah mm-hmm. yeah and that kind of goes back to that accurate or inaccurate evaluation of threat and how important that is mm-hmm. so this is going to be 
a potential left turn into a totally different space, but I really want to say it. <laughs> Been fighting it. I know, I know. I'm like, ugh. So I'm curious what you guys think about this idea. I think that I think that we are used to thinking about memories as things that we have. And based on this, what I'm feeling compelled to say and see how this feels is memories memory is what we are mm. it is who we are it is the self it is a self-referential state i'm mm. i'm not sure that the distinguishing between memories being the set of things that is a part of us is as accurate as saying memories are what make us like it mm. is it is the yeah, it's the, the material mosaic that is you. Yeah, it is literally the material. A memory mosaic. Yeah, so. memories memories are not I think I think we have pictures in our head of a reference library that we walk through and pull things off the shelf when it's relevant. But what feels more true is to say we are the library. Yeah, it's more four-dimensional than that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think that like while that is somewhat of a subtle shift as a therapist to look at an individual as a mosaic of memory embodied living acting out can we write a paper <laughs> it's a beautiful idea isn't mosaic it mosaic of memory yeah mosaic of memory as as an understanding of selfhood like this oh. <laughs> my body's just getting lit it's up it's good right, now. right? Ooh. incarnate memory oh. Oh. the embodiment of selfhood okay <laughs> okay we're gonna oh and uh yeah okay yeah so yeah. I'm glad I said that out loud. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it, it's recorded. No, yeah. It now exists. Oh, in, in perpetuity it forever. Is a, it is a very good, yeah, very it's, good concept. Well, and I, I think that I there, there's a, a building because, like we said, this was written in 99, where we were just sort of just thinking about and discovering the importance of and highlighting how relevant the brain and the nervous system are when it comes to therapy and trauma and experience and all of that. And all of these years later... What has been built upon this is sort of this revelation of, no, it's not this thing that also matters. It's the thing. It's it's the only thing. Like everything that we do is always interacting with this selfhood of mm -hmm. living memory embodied in human form. And I think that there is something really supportive, at, at least to me. Now, I have a pretty big somatic lens in the way that I work, so I don't know that this would feel supportive to everybody. Um, but this idea of, you know, viewing a human being as that rather than, oh, we're going to work on memories today. Uh, so no. this <laughs> changes the way we yes. do EMDR. So much. It changes the way we do all therapy, but yeah, it's just such mm. a beautiful shift, mm -hmm. um, that we're not going back in time. No. To try to. It's right now. It's, it's all alive right now. And, and. When we're, when we're picking what memory in scare quotes to work on, what we're actually saying is, what state of activation do we want to work with today? And there's so many ways to produce that state of activation in mm -hmm. your system. Yeah. Which door do we to, want to go in? To integrate it. Yes. Yes. Oh, you're right. It does change how we do EMDR. That's yeah. right. I have to think about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I was being honest, there's a part of me in that kind of expose that um, was sort of nervous about how it comes across to say that um, all you are your memory as living. Mm. But as 
uh, I sort of sat with that and listened to you guys a little further, what sort of, what I realized was my own overemphasis on narration and yes. cognition. Yes. And when you really start to take that and piece it to the four types of memory yes. and their use dependence, yes. you oh. are not the person who is harming the person next to you. That is not you. Mm-hmm. You are the child mm. fighting for security and safety. That's Always. Right. And that brings a sort of compassion yes. and humility. We're just to beings the posture. in time. Yeah. Yes. And rather than um, put people in shame structures, that's right. You orient people Victim in the development. Victim versus perpetrator. Yeah. Or, yeah. You orient them in their developmental beingness. Yes. Which I think have, the three of us do naturally. Yeah. Intuitively. And have yeah. Genuine compassion for that. Yes. Mm. That's why, and we say this in one of our trainings, that there's no such thing as a villain or a hero. Yes. Mm. It doesn't, it's not, it's not helpful actually it, when you really think about it to yeah. break things down into these dualistic uh, either or black or white categories because that, that, it, that completely cuts away uh, memory experience mm-hmm. um, of the four different types of memory. It invalidates mm-hmm. the way your brain is integrating material and yeah. using it for the sake of consciousness. Yeah. Presence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just as clinicians, you know, this is taking Perry stuff now and sort of applying it um, as a clinician, just sort of humbly, maybe at times checking. Yeah. I'm thinking of myself needing to check at times. Oh, have I gone too affective and cognitive mm. and forgot how the motor vestibular yeah. uh, memory may be mm-hmm. either presenting itself or longing to pre- yeah. present itself and is being sort of dissociated from yeah. the inner subjective space, uh, that and also state. And I think I'm more prone to look at state because I, I love mm-hmm. polyvagal theory. But mm-hmm. um, one of the questions um, that just came to my mind and with a case example in mind of mine, what happens when, when the experience of the state in the session is intolerable to the client, mm-hmm. yet their cognitive memory says that we still must continue. This happens all the time. It does. Mm-hmm. And I have a client that, just to give the, the, the other side of what I was kind of introducing, that will put on a smile, very dismissive orientation, call back again, <laughs> first episode, mm-hmm. but has a very dismissive orientation. And in that uh, experience of intolerable affect, will not look for or even be open to attunement in it. Mm-hmm. but will present as someone just white-knuckling it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through that experience. And so me even just saying, we're just going to look at, like, yeah. we're just going to walk up to Giving it and, a little and distance. just touch yeah. it. Like, we're just right there. That's, yeah. like, as much as they can take. So I want to nuance what you're saying yeah. just a little bit. I think, so I'm, I'm just going to make some statements that we're not going to explore because we don't have time. Oh, mm. What we're talking I about is a, a fractaled personality. Okay. Which is, we're going to come back to that phrase. Take one. Because that gives me goosebumps. And then here's one for you, Caleb. The me's across time, right? (laughs) So what what you're talking about, Bridger, is that you have states of self, right? These these me's that happened at these specific points in time in my history. And that me is encoded in my structure, 
Like it's in my body. Mm-hmm. It's in my everything. The viscera. Um, the viscera of my nervous system and my bones and my muscles, fascia, all of it, right? So we have that me state that is woken up by the state of activation of whatever we're doing in therapy. Yeah. But then we also have, and we experience this all the time in therapy, more than one state of activation can be happening at the same time. It, it's never one. Yes. And how complicated does that get that I have a, a state of activation from when I was six and, years yes, old? And that's why Perry goes back to again and again how complexity increases yeah. as the brain develops so because what, it's multiple. What we are discussing is the neuroscience of ego state and internal family systems. And, yes. And dissociation. Yes. All, and, all of yes. it. All of it. So in that moment with your client, you are you are interacting with multiple states of activation, yeah. multiple me's. The fractals, like you the, said. Yeah, the yeah. fractaling of the personality. And these two parts have folded together and are staring at each other in conflict with each other. And those two states Be- of activation yes. are holding tension in the system. Because they are in the presence of the most dangerous animal, which is another human. And more than that, they have different opinions. Yeah. Those, those oh. me states yes. have different ideas about threat evaluation and resource evaluation and mm. this is where we get tremendous tension in personalities mm. right like the the states of anxiety that we get in when we're faced with something i want to but i don't want to i think i can i think i can't all of that is represented by the conflict between these different me states spread spread across time that are still 100 percent present with us i just got the same feeling that I get every time I watch Interstellar. <laughs> it's because of like the me's across time. Right, like, just be, get oh, jacked oh, on that. But anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. It does. But No, this is important, what we're talking about. Uh, I don't know if everybody else yeah. is going to enjoy it as much as we are, but oh my gosh, you guys, this is real important. Yeah. Hmm. Caleb? Caleb? Well, <laughs> I, I have, bring us home because so we got to like... Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, like having a spiritual experience that we're here talking I'm about. Yeah. So, it's so good. Well, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> and also you can thank Perry because thank he's done you. amazing do. work. Perry. Oh I my do. gosh. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I want to do two things just to end this episode. Uh, the first thing is to um, sort of make a, a, a bit of a summarizing claim Um but before that, I would like to sort of know where you guys are at with like taking away Perry's work of memories of fear. What would be your um, the main takeaway as far as your clinician mm-hmm. who is practicing and uh, and hopefully applying these principles of neurosequential firing oh, and I development? Am. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, of course we are. I yes, am. hopefully, absolutely. The, yeah, and this is some bedrock stuff of our model and Mm -hmm. different things like that. But, um, what, what would be the, your one takeaway or if you could summarize a statement, right? So this is a synthesis of a couple of his paragraphs. This is like my thing from this article. I mean, besides the whole fractal personality and music cross time, which just happened, but, um, this is a statement knowing the relationship between past trauma and current functioning tells us more than diagnosis in terms of etiology, treatment, and prognosis. Okay, so I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Knowing the relationship between our client's past trauma and their current functioning tells us so much more than their diagnosis does in terms of treatment, etiology, and prognosis. So here would be my summary statement of that. 
the diagnosis that a client comes in with or the diagnosis that we decide is relevant to them is pretty darn irrelevant Yes. when faced with the reality of if we conceptualize our clients this way through understanding them as an amalgamation of their memories and their states of activation, we will get way more relevant information about how we should provide their treatment, how it's likely going to go, what barriers we're going to run into, et cetera, than that diagnosis statement ever That's will. Right. Like this guides us as therapists. This, this conceptualization, this way of thinking is so much more supportive to our understanding and our work with our clients than anything else. That's right. So that's what I would say. Mm. That's beautiful. Thanks. Appreciate what? No, oh, I'm ready. I know you're taking a moment to, to <laughs> hear that, yeah. but also yeah. what, what comes to mind. Okay, so for me, from my intersubjective perspective um, and how much I care about phenomenology and a person's experience, one of the things that I'm so just captivated by and almost um, taken by when I'm sitting with somebody is this question. It's like looming and it always has been in my mind, even since I was a boy. Why are you telling me what you're telling me right now? Mm-hmm. And why are you telling me what you're telling me the way you're telling me? With those words. And those feelings and those looks and those experiences, mm-hmm. why? Those gestures. Yes. That inflection in your voice, mm-hmm. the quivering. Mm-hmm. Um, why? And that, even that sentence that you read, Mel, which is just one of many that kind of point to this, of it's because you're getting the latest synthesis Mm -hmm. of the memories of me. Personality is the latest synthesis of the memories of me. And so (laughs) why I care about that just phenomenologically is that's all that really matters. The way I'm choosing to share my latest synthesis of the memories of me with you is to see how you're going to respond. And that's going to be integrated into uh, who I understand myself to be and who I understand others to be. And I'm going to use the reaction that you give to thus inform how integrated or disintegrated my mind can be. And that is all that I care about. (laughs) therapy yeah so good Caleb mine is um, using the paradigm that um, all behavior is use dependence memory in the present Um, so using that paradigm I I think that Perry's work for me um, helps me to conceptualize what the client is bringing into the present moment yeah that is use dependent and is um uh that has worked for them in the adaptive past. yes yeah. and then i take it to the next question which is who or what object have i become to them? yes mm. oh my gosh because <laughs> i i as a as a therapist and especially one that is very empathetic have to acknowledge the dissonance that i often feel when i've become the um provoker mm-hmm. and sometimes the abuser mm-hmm. to my client and that gets thrown at me mm-hmm. and I start to question myself mm-hmm. yes and in kind of recognizing the use dependence of that and also who they are I can both maintain my own sense of I am me and I'm not that person mm-hmm. as well as provide that mismatch experience with my body yes, yes. and that to me 
Harry's work is like driving me there. Yes. And so with that, I would just like to say, um, if you, again, if you need or if you want more information on Perry's neurosequential neuro model, he's got a wonderful YouTube series. Mm-hmm. We will probably be talking about neurosequential model oh, it's more and more in the future. Piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would just say, um, maybe, Melissa, would you read that one about the one quote about the diagnosis one more time? Mm-hmm. I think that'll be a, a send good, off. Yeah. A good send off. It's a good one, yeah. yeah. So, knowing the relationship between our client's past trauma and their current functioning tells us more than their diagnosis ever will in terms of their treatment, etiology, and prognosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for listening yeah. to Evidence-Based Therapy. That's right. So before we go, we want to let you guys know that we're about to have a whole second conversation about this article because we got really excited about something <laughs> about the prime directive of the human nervous system. Oh. And uh, is it just safety or is it maybe safety and procreation? So we're going to have a little conversation about mm. sex. That's right. Come on. <laughs> From a nervous system perspective. A neurosequential perspective. A neurosequential perspective neurosequential. on sexuality. Yes. Um, and uh, that will be on our secret podcast, which is called Mind of the Therapist, of a Therapist. Yes. And uh, you can get, you get access. access to yeah, you get mm-hmm. access to that by becoming a member of our Patreon. And you can find that at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. And on there we have a ton of additional resources, including that secret podcast where you get to listen to th- the three of us have even more Just unedited conversations. <laughs> yeah, remember that one moment where we got like super jacked? Yep. <laughs> those those, those Mind of a Therapist yeah, episodes yeah. are like that, but we're all kind the- of like getting... Just too, too jacked. Too, well, well, I think I think the difference is is that there's no whip, right? Yeah, like, like right. we just let ourselves yeah. totally yeah. freestyle. It's the conversations <laughs> that are too jacked for public yes, exposure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like yeah. we just wouldn't subject the normal public to that. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. you got you got to you got to want that. Yeah, you got to go you there. Found yourself. your states shifting into like a <laughs> oh yes, I am. I want t- that's what I'm talking that. about. Yeah. Then, yeah. then come join us because it's a it's a fun inner subjective space. Yes, yeah. So that's patreon.com slash beyond healing center. You can listen to us even more, and there are a lot of other resources on there, including uh, live demonstrations of um, us doing therapy. Yeah, yeah, and Very that's cool. always fun to be a fly on a wall in sessions with Ooh. people. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.